Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. This is Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Dana Pike to talk about Israelite monarchies in the Old Testament. Dana M. Pike is a professor in the Department of Ancient Scripture and in the Ancient Near East Studies Program at BYU. Just prior to his assignment as department chair, Dr. Pike was an associate dean of religious education. He has taught at BYU since 1992, including two different years at BYU's Jerusalem Center for Near Eastern Studies. Dr. Pike received his B.S. in Near Eastern Archaeology and Anthropology from Brigham Young University and his Ph.D. in the Hebrew Bible and Ancient Near Eastern Studies from the University of Pennsylvania. His research centers on the Hebrew Bible and the Dead Sea Scrolls, as well as related topics of interest to Latter-day Saints. He was one of the international editors of the Dead Sea Scrolls. He's also contributed three chapters to A Bible Reader's History of the Ancient World, which we are going to discuss today. Welcome, Dr. Pike. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. It's really interesting in your chapter. You said that you were writing a history of the United Monarchy, not the history of the period. Before we even start our discussion, why do you think we need to lay that framework? I think that's a basic historical approach that uh, it's helpful for all readers of the Bible to recognize. One, we do not know everything about what happened in ancient Israel. Two, the authors and redactors, which is a fancy name for editors, I suppose, chose certain things to highlight, to emphasize, to make the points they wanted to make. And so already we are dependent upon what they've chosen and how they've written it up, similar to what Mormon does in the Book of Mormon for Latter-day Saints. And then there's also the aspect of how do I interact with, how do I interpret what's written? How do I understand that? What does it mean to me? So we've got partial information presented in a particular light, and then I interact with that and bring what I bring to the text, all of my life's experiences and perspectives and beliefs and what have you. So we never have a complete, definitive, the history of any people in any time period, including the Israelites in ancient Israel. And so I just felt it was important, since this is a chapter in a book that's designed for students, to help them think through it's important to consider what the authors and editors are brought to the table. What do I bring to the table? How do I make the most of that? While well, I still remember that there's a lot more that could have been said that we don't know. Also, in this particular instance, the evidence outside the Bible for some of these accounts is so minimal and so sketchy. And so academics have interpreted it in different ways. So Dr. Pike may write a chapter on the United Monarchy, but someone else who also has a PhD might analyze the evidence differently. Would you agree? I would agree. It depends in large measure 
on how much credence someone is willing to give the biblical account. And there are scholars who would say, I take the Bible to be essentially true as far as a historical account goes, except when I can prove it differently, innocent until proven guilty, so to speak. And there are others who say this is so religiously oriented and focused that it's probably so biased that maybe we shouldn't take it at all as having any historical value. And they're at the other end of the spectrum. I would say most biblical scholars fall somewhere in the middle, partly, again, because in the early portions of Israelite history, we don't have much other than the Bible. Archaeology gives us, again, a sense of daily life, but we don't have names of people. We have a little bit about their beliefs, but... Uh, uh, it's hard to do much without the biblical account unless you're just interested in the anthropological perspective of early Israelite time periods. Let's start by discussing what the Israelites had as a governing body before the united monarchy. Okay, we all know that Joshua made the walls of Jericho tumble. After that came what? Well, the book of Joshua recounts both the uh, Israelite entrance into the land, again, a point with which many scholars uh, would disagree historically, but that's the biblical depiction. Joshua chapters 13 to 22, the portion we typically skip when we read the book of Joshua, talk about the allotment of the land to the different tribes of Israel, and then Joshua dies at the end of the book of Joshua, and we're introduced in the next book to the book of Judges. These are not so much uh, men who sit behind a, a desk or a bench and make legal decisions. Deborah and Samuel are the only two who are depicted as actually making decisions about anything. The rest of the judges are chieftains. The Spirit of the Lord rushes upon them. They go into battle. They help defeat the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, what have you, the Israelites, neighbors who are oppressing them. No central monarch, no central government. Uh, we think the judges were regional and not universally over all of Israel. They're united, according to the Bible, by their descent for the family of Israel. They're Israelites, so they have a kinship factor that brings them together, and they have similar belief in Jehovah or Yahweh that brings them together. But beyond that, there doesn't seem to have been any political governing mechanism that united all of Israel, their family-based, kinship-based organization. How did they make the jump from being ruled by regional judges to a united monarchy? For Samuel, chapter 8 uh, depicts some of the Israelites coming to Samuel and say, we want a king to govern us, to deliver us from our enemies. Uh, let's have a, a monarchy. The system of judges that we have with these chieftains that are moved upon by God's Spirit isn't working sufficiently well. And the famous line in 1 Samuel 8, some Israelites are depicted as saying, we want to be like all the other nations, right? Which automatically, if you're an astute Bible reader, you know that that's a terrible thing to want to be from the biblical perspective. Uh, so the Lord says to Samuel, give them what they want. They get what they want. Uh, it's good sometimes. It's usually bad for them. And, and the consequences are played out over the next three and a half centuries of Israelite history. Let's talk about royalty. What does the term united monarchy refer to? The united monarchy, that's not a biblical term. It's an academic term to describe the state of affairs during the time of the first three kings of Israel, 
united monarchy, implying that these kings ruled over all of Israel. What happens at a certain point in time after Solomon's death, the united monarchy divides, and so then we talk about the divided monarchy. Israelites are not all under one monarch, but there's the kingdom of Israel in the north and the kingdom of Judah in the south, each with their own capital, each with their own king. And that's really the state of affairs from the late 900s down until 720s when the northern kingdom is conquered and destroyed and eliminated. So for about two centuries, there are two kingdoms, north and south, but that's preceded by about one century of a united monarchy when all Israel was uh, ruled by one king, again, according to how the, the Bible relates that to us. Well, the Bible tells us that the first king of all Israel was Saul. He was descended from the tribe of Benjamin and lived in a town called Gibeah, which is uh, several miles north of Jerusalem. First Samuel chapters 9 and 10 relate how Saul meets Samuel, and Samuel the prophet judge uh, anointed Saul to become the first king of Israel. He is then later in, a, in chapter 10 in a, in a public setting uh, acclaimed, recognized and acclaimed as, as king. We don't know how long he ruled. It's an interesting situation. The one verse in the Bible, in the Hebrew Bible, that says anything about the length of his reign is a corrupted text. It's 1 Samuel 13, verse 1. And in Hebrew, it says, when Saul was a year old, he began to reign, and he reigned for two years. And that's problematic in lots of ways, <laughs> because he's just been described a few chapters earlier as taller than everybody else. So we have uh, difficulty. The, the Greek translation, the Septuagint, does not include that verse. Either it wasn't in the Hebrew text from which they were working, or they thought it was so problematic they just chose to leave it out. Scholars typically guess that a nice round number is 20 years. The King James Version that many Latter-day Saints use in the English-speaking portions of the church tries to finesse the situation, but it doesn't really follow the Hebrew text, which is its base. So the biblical text is problematic, scholars tend to think, given the amount of information about Saul fighting Philistines and other of Israelites' neighbors that uh, we just guess about 20 years, which gives us a total of about 100 years for the United Monarchy, since there are claims that David ruled for about 40 years and Solomon ruled for about 40 years. So there's about a century of United Monarchy, and there's about two centuries of Divided Monarchy, and then the northern kingdom goes away, and there's just the southern kingdom of Judah for another 150 years after that. Let's talk about King David. We okay. finally have a royal family here. Would you say he's the largest character in the Bible, or at least the Old Testament? David is clearly one of the largest characters, personalities in the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. I think Moses is right up there as well. And Abraham, so, but he's clearly in, David would clearly be in what I would consider top tier of biblical personalities or characters, in part because of the way he's depicted, uh, and in part because of how tradition continues to, uh, to elevate and, and focus on David. And that has to do, 
especially with the promise given to David that his dynasty would always rule. Christians understand that to be fulfilled in Jesus, but Jews uh, were waiting for a Davidic Messiah as well. So the messianic expectations of a descendant of David, and David is the great ideal king who was loyal to Yahweh or Jehovah alone, which most kings weren't. That really propels him to the top of the list, I suppose we could say, as a uh, seminal figure in uh, both ancient Israel as described in the Old Testament, but then also in later Jewish and Christian tradition. Before we start our discussion of David, let's set a new framework. For those of us who are simply going to gospel doctrine class and reading the Bible as history, we may not be aware how highly contested some of these biblical accounts are in regards to whether they're historical or not. I've always just assumed that David was a real person and he did everything as it was described in the Bible. But you mentioned that because of the purpose of telling the story of David, there may be some hyperbole involved. There may be some hyperbole, yes. And again, as I've said previously, this depends on what you bring to the text, whether you accept it at face value or see it as essentially true at its core, but uh, literary and theological influences may have led to some hyperbole or Exaggeration is, doesn't sound quite as nice as hyperbole. <laughs> For example, as we're reading in the latter half of 1 Samuel, Saul makes a number of decisions, and, and Samuel says to him, the Lord's not going to choose you and your family to, be, to have a dynasty over Israel. The Lord's withdrawing his spirit from you. And David is on the rise. David's anointed. David defeats Goliath. And so there's Saul on a downward arc, as it's depicted, and David on an ascending arc of success and favor. Most of us don't always read 2 Samuel so closely, where David does a number of things that are uh, disagreeable to the Lord and his prophets, again, the way the Bible picks them. The purpose, though, of the biblical text seems to be to legitimize David as the chosen king whose descendants form this royal dynasty over the Israelites. The texts that we have are not written in David's day. They're written hundreds of years after the fact. They're looking back and they're trying to show how and why David was chosen how and why his dynasty has continued to rule in Jerusalem, ultimately, again, for three and a half centuries. Later Jews and Christians, as we've said, the messianic expectations that a son or descendant of David would be the Messiah of the Lord, that helps to focus on the ideal aspects of David, the prominent and favorable aspects of David and tends to cause us to not think so much about some of the other choices he made in the second half of his life, second half of his rule. He's even portrayed as a proto-Messiah. He conquers Goliath. He saves the nation, just like the new Messiah will rescue them again. Yes, he is. And Saul, who is quite tall, doesn't go out to battle against Goliath, who is 
said to be quite tall himself. But this teenager in a T-shirt and cutoffs goes out with his sling and his faith in the Lord and is successful against uh, this giant Goliath, which comes not just to represent success in that particular contest, but as we've said, has theological connotations about how the Messiah will overcome all of Israel's enemies. Also, there's quite a bit of symbolism in the text regarding the reign of David. For instance, he reigned for 40 years, not 39, not 41. What significance would that have in a Hebrew text? We have many times in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, where 40 is used. And sometimes we think it's meant literally. Sometimes it just appears to be an idiomatic way of saying a long time especially a long, successful time, but it could be a long, challenging time. The Israelites are in the wilderness for 40 years, right? And uh, a number of other 40 days, 40 years uh, instances. When Samuel, the book of Samuel, 2 Samuel in particular, tells us that David ruled for about seven years in Hebron after Saul's death, and actually there is a little seven-year glitch in the United Monarchy where there's a division. But David ruled seven years in Hebron over Judah and then 33 years over all of Israel. Second Samuel 5 recounts that uh, coming to pass. Then we're left with this 40, and then Solomon, his son, is going to reign 40 years. Most people assume that this is meant to be a nice round grand number, but since we don't have any other information, we tend to just go with the 40 years. What about the conquests of an amount of land governed by King David as recorded in the Bible? How do we take that? Again, if we accept the Bible at face value, then it sounds like David conquers most of his neighbors. He never completely conquers the Philistines, and he never conquers the Phoenicians. He has treaties with them. But uh, southeast and north, he conquers, according to the biblical account. And his influence is said to have extended all the way up to the Euphrates River. Now, most scholars are going to say, nah, it doesn't look like that. We don't think anybody in that era, in that region, had the power to be that uh, That's way strong. up to Babylon. Yeah, yeah and we, we, we say the Euphrates, the Bible says the Euphrates. I, I'm not sure that it's trying to tell us that David actually conquered and controlled those uh-huh. areas, but had treaties with them. Uh-huh. They were vassals under his uh, authority and were paying taxes and tribute and what have you. But either way, it's clear historically that this is a time in which a regional power could exert itself but it also does not seem that any of those small early nations were able to exercise that much control and power. And part of what's going on there is the biblical account is drawing on some prophecies or statements that are attributed to the Lord says to Abraham that his posterity would have this great region. And so it appears to me, at least, that the biblical authors are trying to say, look, this has been fulfilled. And if there's one thing that the narrative texts in the Bible want to emphasize, it's that prophecies are always fulfilled. And so whenever there's an opportunity for them to say, 
look, this was said way back when, and it's being fulfilled now. They take that opportunity and emphasize that. So that, that's just an aspect of the narrative biblical literature that we have. When was David supposed to have ruled? We, again, don't have exact dates, so we build our chronology from dates that we do know in the 700s and the 800s, and then we work backwards, further back into time. We typically believe that Saul was a ruler in the late 1000s, the late 11th century. David came to the throne sometime uh, 1009, 1001. Those are the most common dates. If we see him reigning for about 40 years, that means Solomon comes to the throne sometime around 960 or 960 something, and then 40 years for him down to about 925-ish or something like that. How developed was the Israelite writing system during the reign of David? We have hardly any inscriptions from Israelites in the early to mid-10th century, the 900s, when David is king. So it's hard to know for sure. The biblical account depicts some sort of a growing scribal class to support the monarchy and to support uh, developing uh, trade and economic matters. That, even in the biblical account, comes to greater fruition during the reign of Solomon. Having said that, we do know that at least some people were literate, functionally literate, and some would have been more literate than others, obviously. But in the time of David, we assume that most Israelites had little or no capacity as far as literacy goes. When I was reading about that in your chapter, I was thinking about how I'd grown up always thinking the Psalms were written by David. They were attributed to him. What does this limited writing system maybe say about the authorship of the Psalms? Well, I'd say there are two issues there. One is how many people were able to write and to what extent. The fact that we don't have a lot of inscriptions or haven't discovered them yet doesn't mean there wasn't greater literacy than, than would appear just from the few inscriptions we have. And in fact, just within the last 20 years or so, a few inscriptions have been found which date to the time of Saul, David, in that era, early 10th century. To a certain extent, it's what survived and what has been found. But as I said, I imagine that literacy was limited during the reign of David, increasing during the reign of Solomon. The second issue is, did David really author all 150 Psalms that we have in the Book of Psalms? And, and even the Book of Psalms doesn't make that claim. Only about a third, I've forgotten the percentage, only about a third of them begin a Psalm of David. Traditionally, it's just been thought that David wrote all the Psalms, but a number of Psalms have attributions to other people. There's a Psalm from Solomon, there's a Psalm from Kohath and others, and some aren't attributed to anyone. David is depicted as a great Psalmist, whether he wrote these down, whether they were preserved orally and transmitted that way till they were written down later, we don't know. The Hebrew expression, a Psalm of David, doesn't necessarily mean that he wrote them all, but 
some people think some of them are in the style of David or are, were attributed to David, even though they weren't written by him. So there's it's a whole series of factors there in trying to figure out uh, how many of the actual Psalms in the book of Psalms were originally produced by David. I'm assuming some, but even the book of Psalms tells us they were not all produced by David. How was Solomon's role different than David's? Well, the biblical depiction of Solomon's role is that uh, it was a time of greater peace, greater organization, that Solomon is building on the foundation laid by David to create a kingdom. Bureaucracies are developing manners in which to organize and retrieve taxes, building projects that required forced labor. It's easiest to say it's a time of consolidation, right? Building on David uh, and his accomplishments. But Solomon, even his name, we say Solomon, that's the Greek-English form. Shlomo is the Hebrew form related to the root shalom, peace or well-being. So his name helps to symbolize that that became a time of prosperity, much more of a peaceful time than the regular warfare that seems to have existed during David's time, according to the Bible. You mentioned earlier that redactors put things in the text for theological purposes. When historicity is suspect, then you always ask, what is the purpose of the story in the text? What do you think was the purpose of the count of Solomon's reign? We learn about Solomon's reign in 1 Kings 1 through 11, and actually David is on his deathbed at the opening of 1 Kings. 1 Kings, 2 Kings, originally one book, were produced in the late 600s down into the 500s, so many centuries after the fact. So as you've said, this is religious history or history with a religious purpose. And it's interesting to note that the 11 chapters that recount Solomon's reign at the opening of 1 Kings are organized as a chiasm, which is a literary term based on the Greek letter chi, which looks like an X. Many listeners may be familiar with this as a, as a literary uh, form, both in the Bible and there's some evidence of it in the Book of Mormon. It most often occurs in poetry, but it certainly occurs in narrative prose as well. And as we look at the first 11 chapters of First Kings, chiastically, what falls out in the center is the account of the building and dedication of the temple of Jehovah or Yahweh in Jerusalem under Solomon's direction. So chapter 6, the building, chapter 8, the dedication, and that all comes at the core of this account. Clearly, the authors, I think, have consciously chosen to organize the account of Solomon's reign in such a way that it emphasizes this as his great accomplishment. And the sad reality is, is that when Kings was being produced, the book of Kings, produced as we know it, it's, it's at the time of the destruction of the temple. So again, for Latter-day Saints, looking at Mormon in the Book of Mormon, here's somebody looking back over many centuries and saying, how did we get here? Look what happened, what led to this? And the same sort of thing is driving the production of the Book of Kings in the Bible. Three and a half centuries after the, the inauguration of a monarchy, the building of the temple in Jerusalem, and now we're being conquered, we're being deported, the temple's destroyed. How did we get here? What did we do that brought this about? And at least in the Joshua Judges Samuel King's historical overview, which we refer to 
using the scholarly term deuteronomistic history, and that's just a fancy way of saying Deuteronomy-like. So this historical overview draws on the vocabulary and the themes and the perspectives in the book of Deuteronomy. Love God with all your heart, only serve him, don't serve other gods. Additionally, the sense that it's Jehovah who owns the lands, and you're only allowed to stay in his land if you're faithful to him and serve him. Clearly, the folks who put the Book of Kings together are looking back and saying, look at all the times when we've had kings and subjects who weren't faithful, who didn't love and serve just Jehovah, but brought in the worship of other gods and so on. And so all of these perspectives that are in the book of Deuteronomy become the orientation for evaluating history and producing this religious historical overview. The book of Chronicles has a different perspective. So if we say that the book of Kings is produced in the late 600s and finalized in the mid 500s BC, the book of Chronicles is produced about two centuries later, late 400s, maybe into the 300s BC, has much more of a priestly and Levitical and temple-oriented perspective on things. Certainly, the perspective is still you need to obey God, keep the commandments, but there is a different emphasis on what's important. The focus is not so much on the kings of Israel, but on temple worship and how faithful the kings were in supporting temple worship and, and the appropriate worship of Jehovah. If we go back and think about some of David's activities recounted in 2 Samuel, the story about Uriah, David uh, committing adultery with Bathsheba, having her husband Uriah killed in battle, and so on, that's all left out of Chronicles. So already, after the book of Kings is produced, Samuel and Kings, and now a few centuries later when Chronicles is produced, there's a conscious effort to help shine the rightest light on David. They clearly knew about the other activities. They're recorded in books that became part of the biblical canon, but they stopped talking about them in an effort to highlight and emphasize the good about David and the good about his uh, efforts to worship Jehovah alone. The United Monarchy only lasted for three kingships. What were the divided monarchies, and how long did they rule? All right, so at the death of Solomon, we read in 1 Kings chapter 12 that the leaders of some of the tribes from the northern tribal areas decided they didn't want to be ruled by Solomon's son Rehoboam unless he was going to change some policies. This is our basis for understanding that the united monarchy, Saul, David, and Solomon, divided, right? There was no longer one king over Israel, but the northern tribes said, we're out of here. Uh, we'll have our own ruler. We're not going to be ruled over by the Davidic dynasty in Jerusalem anymore. From about somewhere in the 920s down to 722, 721, when the Assyrians terminate the existence of the northern kingdom. We have two centuries with two Israelite kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which is called Israel, which gets confusing, but if the northern kingdom was called Israel, the southern kingdom with its capital still in Jerusalem was called the kingdom of Judah. They each have their own kings. There are accounts of prophets serving in the northern kingdom and in the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom continued to be ruled by the Davidic dynasty, descendants from David. The northern kingdom 
had a much more of a colorful and fluid political life, uh, multiple dynasties, some lasting one or two rulers, some lasting three or four rulers. But the two centuries in the northern kingdom were less stable. The Book of Kings recounts this period of time through an interesting literary element called the synchronous scheme. Can you describe that? All right. Synchronous or synchronistic history is the academic term we use to explain what's going on. First Kings 12 through Second Kings 17. So that's the two centuries of time in which there are two Israelite kingdoms, the divided monarchy period. And the redactors, the people who put the Book of Kings together, made an effort to coordinate or synchronize their accounts. So they'll say, just as an example, King so-and-so in the north came to the throne, he ruled for this many years, and -and so-and-so was king in the south. So there's this regular effort to organize and synchronize the accounts of the two kingdoms. What's interesting, again, we mentioned Chronicles has a little bit different take on Israelite history. Not that they're unaware, but they chose to only include accounts of the reigns of the kings in Jerusalem, the Davidic dynasty. And the only time the book of Chronicles mentions kings in the north is when they interact with kings in the south. The chronicler's focus is on David's dynasty, Jerusalem, and support of the temple in Jerusalem. Forget those renegade Israelites in the northern kingdom, except when we have to mention them, then I guess we can. But the rest of the time, we know that true Israel and the true worship of Jehovah in the right way was taking place in Jerusalem. So that's where the chronicler chose to focus. Which brings us back to a question you asked at the very beginning is, the history versus a history. Again, just in looking at Kings and Chronicles, we can see that different Israelites in different time periods with different agendas, attempts to focus on different things, have chosen certain information and left out other information. And we do that all the time. Mormon in the Book of Mormon says he had to do that as well. We know Mormon's name. We don't know the names of the redactors or editors in the biblical accounts. And we do know that Mormon claims, uh, I believe it, that he was uh, inspired by the Lord to include certain things. Most people assume that the biblical authors were inspired to include certain things as well. So how long did the divided monarchies last? The divided monarchies lasted about two centuries, from the 920s to the 720s BC. What caused the destruction of the Northern Kingdom? We have this interesting collection or combination of data available to us to answer that question. The biblical answer to that is found in 2 Kings 17, which essentially says the northern kingdom and the Israelites living in the northern kingdom have worshipped other gods in addition to Jehovah. They've chased after them. They've been involved in inappropriate worship, immorality. They haven't always followed the prophets and prophetic counsel and reproof. And so the Lord withdrew his spirit and power and protection and allowed and even brought the Assyrians against the northern kingdom, the Assyrian army defeating the Israelites, annexing their territory to become part of the Assyrian empire. If we didn't have that account and we just looked essentially at other historical information, it's clear that the Israelite army was no match for the Assyrian empire. 
Uh, it's clear that the Assyrians were on a roll, so to speak, through the, the Levant, the eastern Mediterranean region. They had rolled over uh, Syria, the people who are known as the Arameans in antiquity, and had come into the northern kingdom of Israel. They were working their way down the coast, and if we go beyond 2 Kings 17, we have the Assyrians interacting with the Israelites, the Judahites, uh, who are living in the kingdom of Judah. The Assyrians are clearly the, the ancient Near Eastern power of the time. The biblical account, again, with its religious perspective, says the Assyrians wouldn't have been able to be successful against the northern kingdom of Israel if the Israelites had been faithful. But since they weren't, the Assyrians conquered them. There were quite a few kings that ruled during this period. We won't go through each king as that's the fodder for students of the ancient Near East. Let's just concentrate on one of them and what it shows about how Israelite redactors wrote scripture. There's an account of some golden calves that were constructed during the reign of King Jeroboam I. What problem did these calves pose for the redactors. All right, so 1 Kings chapter 12 recounts the dissolution of the United Monarchy and the effort of the Northern tribes to create their own monarchy. Jeroboam I, we call him the first because there's a Jeroboam later in the 700s who's also king of the Northern Kingdom. But Jeroboam I in the late 900s establishes a monarchy in the Northern Kingdom and the little bit of information that we have preserved for us in 1 Kings chapter 12, which is our sole basis of information on this episode, recounts that he was concerned about Israelites going to worship in Jerusalem and how that might tend to undermine his rule in the northern kingdom, since Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom now. And so in addition to creating new priests and a new calendar, he created two national religious shrines, each of which had a golden calf, a young bull. Immediately, if you're reading the biblical account, you're supposed to think of Exodus 32, the account of the creation of the golden calf by Aaron and the Israelites at the base of Mount Sinai, and how that was destroyed when Moses came down. Be that as it may, the account tells us that Jeroboam I set up a shrine in Dan, a city in the northern part of Israel, and Bethel, which was a city it's in central Israel, but it's in the southern portion of the northern kingdom of Israel, that new northern kingdom. And there probably was also a shrine in, in his capital. But Israelites were now in the northern kingdom were allowed, encouraged, to uh, worship at these shrines. They didn't have to make the trek to Jerusalem. People have wondered over the years what the golden calves were meant to represent. Clearly, calves and bulls in ancient Near Eastern iconography and mythology represent power and fertility and conquest and what have you. The standard approach to interpreting this now is to see the golden calves as pedestals, not as Yahweh or Jehovah himself, but as pedestals over which God could appear or could be envisioned or imagined to appear. And the basis for that is a number of uh, depictions, mostly carvings, but some even some tomb paintings from Egypt, in which a variety of ancient Near Eastern deities are depicted standing on the back of lions and bulls and calves. And so the sense is that these became functionally equivalent to the Ark of the Covenant, 
which in earlier biblical passages is the place, especially in accounts about Moses, the Lord says, I'll appear to you over the Ark of the Covenant. And so the Ark begins to be imagined as both the throne or the footstool of God. And so it's assumed that Jeroboam and the northern Israelites created the golden calves in Dan and Bethel to function as pedestals over which they could imagine the Lord appearing. Thus, they become functionally equivalent to the Ark of the Covenant in Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. But the Book of Kings was redacted, produced, compiled, and produced by people who had lived in the southern kingdom of Judah, who had maintained their Davidic dynasty, who had continued to worship at Solomon's temple. So as they look back at history, Jeroboam I and others in the northern kingdom were essentially viewed as apostates. And so even though Jeroboam and his people could have imagined this as a legitimate way of worshiping Yahweh, because the bulls certainly weren't to be confused with Yahweh over the centuries, and looking at it from a different perspective in the South, the redactors are quite negative about this. And it becomes known in the texts of kings as the sin of Jeroboam. Every king of the northern kingdom is judged against this benchmark. Did they allow the sin of Jeroboam to continue? In other words, that the two golden calves and the one in Dan, the one in Bethel were allowed to continue to exist, or did they eliminate it? None of the kings of the northern kingdom eliminated the golden calves, so every king is judged as deficient, apostate, perverse, if you will, because they walked in the way of Jeroboam. They followed the sin of Jeroboam, as the redactors describe it. There seems to be an element to the rule of the monarchs, as recorded in the Bible, that mirrors that of the people in the Book of Mormon. What similarities have you noticed? Focusing especially on the biblical account, from Deuteronomy, again, Deuteronomy onwards, there's this sense that kings were supposed to be loyal to Jehovah and represent him to their people. The Book of Kings is full of examples and cases where kings don't do that. They worship other gods. They include the worship of gods in their capital cities. Ahab is a classic example. Ahab is decried in in pretty short accounts uh, in the biblical text as just a terrible king because he worships Baal. He marries the daughter of a Phoenician king and makes her part of uh, his harem and brings in with her the uh, the worship of Baal and probably other deities in addition to Jehovah or Yahweh. But from what little we know of Ahab from external sources, from Neo-Assyrian sources, he was a fairly strong king. And so Ahab probably was a powerful ruler who had a good economy and a good military because he was deficient, we would say, in measuring up against the standard that the biblical authors and redactors have. He's depicted as one of the worst kings of the northern kingdom. We have cases in the Book of Mormon, King Noah, for example, again, not following in the religious tradition of his ancestors. We hear about pride and power and wealth and the lack of devotion to the Lord as understood by the authors and redactors. And it's interesting for Latter-day Saints, the Book of Mormon has pretty much a Deuteronomistic perspective. I mean, early on in the account, we have Lehi teaching that the Lord has told him that if 
he and his family and their descendants will keep the Lord's commandments as presented to him, that they'll prosper in the land. And if they don't, curses and bad things are going to come and happen to them. And, and that's essentially what the book of Deuteronomy is emphasizing as well. Worship God in the right way, and everything will take care of itself if you're patient. Thank you so much for sharing your scholarship with us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Be sure to check out LDSPerspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.